And thank you for downloading the 73rd edition of Scoring at the Movies. We travel back several years to review sports flicks, and we don't feel bad at all about dishing out a lot of spoilers. I'm the intense coach who casually bounce passes basketballs on the faces of children, including his own, and wants the best team playing no matter the color of their skin, Ryan Ellis. And here's the mighty miner who certainly has the height to play NCAA Division I ball, and who would never throw at apples he's barely eaten, even if it does show off his jump shot, Chris DiGregorio. You nailed me. I am not one to waste food, but I am one to set the mood for a recording in an apropos and very suitable way with a nice glass of red wine and nice fuzzy red robe in front of a fireplace. What screams Division One Texas basketball more than that? <laughs> An intense basketball movie. You're not dressed for it at all. You're not prepared for it at all. Well, this is one of those rare instances where I am slightly prepared, if not dressed. It's better than most for me, so I'll take that. You've already told us what you're drinking. That's a nice start. I have got the old CC and diet. So we're at home here, if you will. Well, we're always at home. And also, I probably should warn people that if you hear some weird noises, it's probably on my end. My neighbors are making a lot of noise tonight. I hear shoveling, I hear pianos, and I think I even hear drums. (laughs) You got a real mix going on. But there's one thing that I really do enjoy about movies we cover, where it takes place a significant amount of time in the past. A movie like this, when you get a lot of voiceover narration from the announcers covering these Division I games... And they talk about the bruising forwards in the centers. And the tallest guy on the court is 6'7". And some of these players who are my height at 6'4 are the big, intimidating forwards. Fast forward, what, 20 to 30 years from here into the late 80s, into the 90s. And all of a sudden, if you're 6'4", you're lucky to be a point guard in the NBA anyway. It's kind of funny to hear some of the descriptions of the players as announced by the courtside announcers anyway. Two of the most athletic players in the entire league's history, and two of the greatest without a doubt, I would say the greatest Michael Jordan and then Magic Johnson somewhere in that conversation, are both also, and people might forget sometimes, really tall. Michael Jordan's 6'6", and Magic, I think, is 6'8", or something, and Magic played point guard. That was part of what made Magic so incredible, especially a point guard in that era. To be that tall was unheard of. These days, you do have the occasional large point guard, like Ben Simmons with the 76ers is a great example. I think he's about 6'8", as well. But yeah, back in, again, the 80s, to be that big and that agile and athletic was just unbelievable. Well, David Latin in this, I looked up the real guy because he did play in the pros for a little while. The way he's built up in this movie, how could he not play in the pros? He was 6'6", way taller than me. He's even taller than you, but that's not that tall for basketball. But I guess maybe part of it is he's monstrous as well when Pat Riley talks about him at the end. You can't really see it that well in the video they show of the real guys playing, but it looks like he's just bigger in every way than Pat Riley, who obviously himself was pretty big too. Height aside, he was just a big dude. And Pat Riley is also a tall man by any normal standards, but he's more of like a slight build, right? Kind of like the Shed character in this movie who's meant to be a tall forward, but he's also much more slight of build than Latin, right? So you can see how those bigger bodies can just really throw their weight around. So how short is Worsley that they mock him for his height? 5'6", apparently. When most of them are not that big, 5'6", so he is shorter than me. He's Muggsy Bogues' height. (laughs) 
Okay, well, let's start this here. Bizarro Hoosiers, it is bizarro because now we're written for the black team and written against the white team, was released by Disney 15 years ago on January 13th, 2006. And that's how we saw it, both of us, on Disney+. Plus. It only made about $42 million, so like Invincible, which was the other sports movie Disney released that year, which we covered not that long ago, it's in our archives, this was no gold mine for the Mouse House. They didn't make as much money as I would have thought they would. I've talked about this movie on other podcasts. I'm a big fan of it. I think I've seen it four times now. Like it about as much as I always did. It hasn't lost any steam for me. But I think this was your first viewing. And what did you think of Glory Road? Yeah, it was my first viewing. And honestly, my thoughts about this movie are probably pretty close to the way I describe my thoughts around Invincible. I don't really remember this hitting the theaters at the time. I'm surprised it didn't do better than it did. It's a good movie. And there's a lot of elements of it that are feel-good, unlike a movie like Invictus. They do a good job of explaining what's going on at all times in the sport. Now, obviously, basketball is a much better-known sport in North America than rugby. But even if you didn't know the game, you have the courtside announcers telling you what's happening and why it's happening. That I think we both found a little bit confusing in parts of Invictus. It's an accessible movie. It's an understandable movie. And even in the early 2000s, this notion of racial tension was not new then. It's even more apropos now in 2021. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I really enjoyed it. And it hit a lot of the marks that a movie like this tries and hopes to hit. Well, this is obviously a movie that's so much about race, almost as much as it is about basketball. So that leads into my nutshell. Gloria Road, in a nutshell. We had all blacks when we covered Invictus. Now we have the true all blacks because (laughs) the starting lineup in the championship game is all black guys. Oh, Ryan. Oh, my. Is that so bad? They said they want to be called black? Yeah. In that conversation with Jerry on the porch? Yeah, fair enough. It's a true nutshell. I didn't know going in. I've subsequently done just a little bit of reading about their real life story because this movie made me interested about this team. I'd never heard anything about the 1965-1966 Texas Western Miners and their improbable NCAA win. By the way, do you find it as jarring as I do when you hear people say NC2A or NCAA? Yeah, it sounds wrong. I don't know when the common vernacular became NCAA, but to hear anything else is just jarring. And they say it so often in this movie. That's why I said it in the intro like that. Because that's what Don Haskins is always doing. Yeah. This movie made me interested in the history of this team, so I did some research, brief research, but research nonetheless about the real Don Haskins, about the real team, the real players, and there's obviously some creative license taken with it, but this is one of the rare instances where I feel like the choices that the screenwriters made for dramatic purposes or just for brevity of story purposes, taking the real story and condensing it down to one season, I think it makes sense. Things like Haskins' career history, they wanted to play up the drama a little bit, so they make him strictly the girls' basketball coach, when in reality, I think he had some other credentials to his name by that point. And he had been the coach of Texas Western for five years, apparently going into their championship, not just the one. The integration of the black players into the roster was a little bit more gradual than just this one year fell swoop. It was again over Mm -hmm. a number of years. But nonetheless, it makes sense for the sake of dramatic tension and just getting this story arc of Texas as a whole, and in particular, this one community within Texas embracing the notion of a visible minority team, or at least the majority of which would be a visible minority, which is kind of an odd thing to say. For the dramatic purposes, you can understand, condense it down to one season. I don't think you lose the real pathos of the historic events. I think you retain all the important elements. 
I thought they did a really good job because most of the time when we cover movies that do have a basis in reality, I often rant about how I dislike them messing with reality because the reality would have been dramatic enough and it would have been a much more fitting homage to those real events if they left it be. But in this case, I thought they did a really good job and it made sense. I looked up some things too. You already hit on some of the points I was going to make. One fun one is that Texas Western became UTEP. Even casual fans probably oh, recognize really? that name, UTEP. Yeah, I that's didn't know what that. they became. So okay. Tim Hardaway, who was one of my favorite players as a youngster, although I think he became a dirtbag. I forget what he did, but he said something or did something wrong a long time ago. But when he was a player, I love that guy. He's one of those people, along with Chris Mullen, because I liked the Warriors back then. I'm not a Warriors guy so much now. But when I followed basketball, that was the team I liked best because I liked him. The UTEP two-step. Wait, did you like the Warriors? He had that great move. During their utterly awful 20-year phase? Yeah. I don't dislike them now. I just don't really follow basketball anyway, and I don't really have any skin in the game with the Steph Curry team, but I like that team. Anyway, so that's UTEP back in those days. I didn't know that. That's cool. And if you didn't say it already, this is the 65-66 season, but yes, Haskins have been there for several years. He's also an Okie, and I thought, is he actually from Texas? So I looked him up, and he's from Oklahoma, just like Adolph Rupp is not actually from Kentucky. He's from, oh, where was it again? Kansas, maybe? So they're both from the basic middle of the country, yeah. but they coach these teams elsewhere. That's not that unusual. I just thought it was an interesting fact that Don's an Okie and not a Texan. And also, when you look on the map where El Paso is, where the school is, it's about as far west as you can go and still be in Texas, and it's right on the Mexican border. And that's why they're on planes sometimes, because I looked it up, flying from where they were to Seattle at that one point. Well, they're taking a bus for the looks of it. That's over a day just from where they were in the west, where their school is. And where they were going from, I think it was the racial incident, well, yeah. the racist incident, I believe they were even further east, so it would have been an even longer trip to Seattle. And then one of the more important things they talk about at the end, we always see this in, almost always at least, in movies of this type, what happened to everybody. A lot of the guys got drafted by NBA teams. Some played in the ABA. Latin played in both. Or they became coaches. It doesn't look like anybody really truly struggled, or if they did, they just didn't bother keying what they did. But our key guys, including Armstrong, we see what happened in their lives. But it's a shame Bobby Joe decided not to go pro, as they say, because he's as talented as anybody. He's probably the flat-out most talented player on their team, and that includes Latin. And in the movie, of course, Derek Luke, who's so good in this, I think, is dating one of my old crushes, Tatiana Ali. <laughs> she was too young for me to have a bit of a crush on, I guess, when she was on the latter years of Fresh Pince. But wow, did she become a beautiful young girl. And she looks great in this, too. She helps the score factor, for sure. Her character in this movie didn't really have a whole lot to do aside from just... She had nothing to do. Yeah, just be the object of desire for the Derek Luke character, but she's an attractive young woman. But this is definitely one of those movies where the women really have very little to do. Even Emily Deschanel, one of Allison's favorite characters in Bones, she's a good actress and she doesn't have much to do in this either. She has a few moments where she's playing kind of supportive wife to Don Haskins, but aside from that, she doesn't really have a whole heck of a lot going on. And in fact, I think the one scene in this movie that I actually laughed out loud at, this movie's not intending it whatsoever, but there is the one moment, I don't remember if it precedes or is after the racist vandalizing of the hotel room incident, but when Haskins comes home and finds his wife sitting on the side of the bed, she's sitting in the moonlight in the dark, staring out the window, and she dramatically drapes some sort of cover over her shoulders and leaves a note sitting on the bed next to her and sits there while Don approaches. And then as he shows up, she sort of dramatically grabs the note and goes, no, you mustn't. <laughs> you couldn't have put a bigger X marks the spot, put a ribbon around that letter, 
I don't know if it was intended that the character secretly wanted Don to find out about these racist letters that they've been receiving all along, or whether this was just the director saying, you really got to play it up, Emily. You are the wife that is trying to protect her husband, but he has to find a letter so that he's got a little bit of that conflict about his family's safety inside, but make it look good. And then she just went so over the top with it that I kind of burst out laughing at a certain point because it was like a 19... 30s 40s film noir femme in peril kind of moment where she's like no you mustn't don no and then finally the truth comes out flick some water on her forehead and wake her up yeah. before she passes out or after she passes out before the vapors get to her and she's just oh no get my. the vapors i don't know her that well i haven't seen that many things that she's done i never saw bones but of course that's her big thing and she is zoe's sister she can smolder she helps the score factor in this movie too she looks great in this film josh lucas put on a lot of weight but he's a bit of a heartthrob usually, maybe not so much. And then she got the young black guy. So I'll say right now, not a scorable movie in the usual way because it's a chase type of film. It's a Disney movie. It's very PG rated at most. It's not even PG-13. But there's beautiful people in this at least. I think maybe Disney Plus did some editing though because you hear a few oh, times really? where somebody says BS, for example, and you hear bull and it's unnaturally cut off. That's true. I didn't check my Blu-ray because I watched Disney Plus like you did. I have the Blu-ray, but I want to see it anyway. I have a feeling maybe that was a Disney Plus thing and not what the Blu-ray has on it. And something else also, maybe a few times in fact, what they're saying sounds like they did in post-production where they're saying crap instead of something else. And I think these young guys, and I'm not saying that's because they're black, but these young guys, period, and also the ones from New York City especially, are going to be the kind of people that say words that Disney doesn't want to put on their channel, A. And B, when bad things happen to them, like the racist incident in the hotel room, every one of these people has every right in the world to be saying every F-bomb you can imagine. So it's a little disingenuous that way, but Disney doesn't make movies that have bad words. They now put them on their channel, so you can see Die Hard and Daredevil and whatnot that swear constantly. But this movie is a little disingenuous that way. And the director you mentioned a minute ago, James Gartner, the only movie credit he's ever had, as a director at least, the only other credit he has, period, on the IMDb, is he produced a short film in 1983. He does commercials, so he's not completely out of the business. I looked him up. I couldn't find any other information about the guy, but only made one movie, and it didn't succeed. But a lot of guys who make bombs keep on making films. And I think they should be proud of this movie. It's a pretty good entry in the genre. It's as good as Invincible, maybe better. It reminded me a lot of Miracle, partly that was shot really well and took you down onto the surface, in this case, the floor, in that case, the ice. I think he did a pretty solid job, and I can't believe he didn't get more work. Maybe he didn't want to keep working. That's my only answer for that. He's got a lot of actors to work with, a lot of young actors to work with, a lot of non-actors in the sense that they're basketball players first. That was the case in Miracle. That was also, I think, the case in Coach Carter, right? I think it was. I think so. So in all these cases, you have to give credit to the director to pull off pretty believable performances from these guys who aren't actually actors. Shin Kerr, who plays Latin, the only movie he ever made. The guy who plays Willie Cager, Scoops, Domaine Radcliffe, actually got into making visual effects. So you look sure. at his credits, he has way more visual effects things than anything else, even though he's made other movies as an actor. The screenplay is cliche, yes, but it's solid. Christopher Cleveland and Bettina Gillois wrote this. They also wrote McFarland, which I believe is on Disney Plus too. That's a Kevin Costner track and field movie, I believe. Unfortunately, Gillois, Gillois, whatever her name is, died last July. I don't know why. Jerry Bruckheimer produced this. You see his logo at the beginning and the end. That's a huge name, making any kind of movie or TV show. They had a talented crew. You look up the various people that made this movie, good, talented, experienced people. They changed cameramen during the movie because the original guy got sick. But I didn't see any kind of difference in the way it looked. I thought it was consistent. And you've got Alicia Keys doing a few songs, reminding me all over again how much I love her voice. She is a great singer. So I don't know why this movie didn't succeed. When I tell you all those things, and you had the Disney marketing behind it, and yet, as we said, Invincible also, and I don't think Miracle really succeeded a few years either. Yeah. 
What happened? I think Disney just frankly drops the ball on its marketing with these kinds of movies. That's the only explanation I can have because they tend to put out at least solid efforts. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have the biggest star power in the world, but it had a lot of really solid two big names involved in the production and it just doesn't pan out. But I do think you touched on one of the elements of the movie that did impress me the most, and it was the depiction of the team and the players individually. They do a good job of painting these guys. It's a group of 12 to 15 young men on this team, and you know that if you're a 20-something athlete and you're just playing sports with a group of 20-something athletes, there's a hell of a lot of swearing that's going to happen. I didn't pick up on it in the moment, but now you say it. Yeah, for sure, there was some creative editing it might be a little less likely to hear that in the 60s, possibly. I don't think so. I remember so. critics criticized Stand By Me for all the swearing in that movie. But young boys, especially in some of the situations these guys get into, would swear. In talking to my father about his youth, the way that they swore at each other was definitely different than it is 60 years later. But it was no less prevalent. Okay. The specific words change, but the behavior doesn't really. Even if with a little bit of censorship thrown on top... I thought they did a really good job of painting all of these guys respectively with a little bit of a three-dimensional brush. It would have been very easy for the movie just to say, okay, this is the guy that's going to be the center. This is the guy that's going to be the forward. Here's your point guard. And yeah, they're all young black athletes, but aside from the color of their skin and the position they play, you know, they just be cardboard cutouts because we've seen enough movies that effectively do that to characters. But these guys do get some depth to them. You're not getting like an entire backstory necessarily, but I can go through every player essentially that's been recruited on the team and give you at least a few facts about their life. Lornoy is a mama's boy, but he wants to be a big bad dude. Shed, who's the wannabe forward, is a little bit of a coward, seeks his dad's attention and never got it. Willie Worsley, the black activist, undersized point guard guy who's got a chip on his shoulder because of all the politics of the day right down to the white players as well. The farm boy guy who stands up at one point and says, I'm the starting forward. And then he told him, you're the minority now. Welcome to our lives. You as the former white starting forward are now being made to sit on the bench because of the color of your skin. Because at one point it was exactly that. Skill aside, there is a point where Don Haskins wants to make a political statement. And he tells the players that are white that they're going to sit this one out. It stings, but I thought that was one of the most poignant moments of the movie because definitely you can see both the hurt in the player's eyes that are told that they're going to sit, but at the same time, they see that as much as they want to play, this is bigger than basketball. This makes a statement about people that they've come to know and care about, and so they buy in, but they don't buy in without at least saying, I wish I was playing or something to that effect, but you guys go out there and kick their asses effectively. There's a little bit of nuance to this movie that I wouldn't have expected, I don't think, going in. Yes. Now, you mentioned Flournoy, one of the better characters in the movie, especially early on, because two of the funnier moments in this movie, that isn't that funny, but there's a few good ones. Definitely one when Don is effectively stalking him, and he runs away from Don more than once, but then he comes home, meaning Harry does, and there's Don sitting in the living room eating pie. Eating his pie. The last slice of pie. Eating my pizza pie. Yeah. So that was good. And then later on, I thought this scene was in Coach Carter, and I think we talked about this on Coach Carter. My son Harry can... When the teacher asks who can answer this question, my son Harry can, Harry's got this one, and Harry doesn't know all the answers. And I love that scene, but I always thought it was from Coach Carter until we saw that last year, and I realized it's not. So I'm glad it's in this movie because it makes this movie a little bit funnier, and Harry's involved in both of those, along with his mother, obviously, giving us some laughs in a movie that's otherwise pretty serious. 
I would have loved it if that was a moment in your life when somebody was trying to track you down and came home and you saw them eating the last piece of pie. And then rather than being upset about it, there was just this utter sense of relief that washed over your face that you wouldn't be forced to eat the last piece of apple oh, pie. Me personally, You yes. personally, right. specifically, because of your notorious... <sighs> Thank you, Coach Haskins. ...dislike of pie. That's part of why I enjoy this movie so much, is it's not just that they do give a little depth to these characters, but Don Haskins, as a character, and presumably as a person in reality, knew enough about each of his players to really try to target them in specific ways when he's trying to bring out the best in them or trying to get them to focus on school or whatever the case may be. I didn't know where he was going with this initially, but when he's talking to Flournoy, because Flournoy's flunking out and he basically says, straighten up and fly right or else I'm going to have to bring a hammer down on you. We should say he's from Indiana or something, I think, Flournoy, right? That's where he was recruited from. And they're down- Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, they're down in El Paso, right? So he's a free man at this point. What are you going to do to me, coach? Of course, a scene later, you get the mom storming down the halls of the dorm. The look on Flournoy's face, full credit to the actor there, because you could just see he goes from being the arrogant big man on campus kind of guy strutting around the dorm to all of a sudden just the pure panic of a young boy who's pissed off his mom. Even Shed. Shed is an interesting character because, A, we know at the end of the movie, he becomes the assistant coach for Don Haskins. So you can tell that that relationship was obviously one that kept growing deeper. But he's the guy that always comes across as the underperforming talent because of a lack of willingness, maybe more than anything else. And rather than push him, push him, push him and hope that he rises to the challenge, it's more like a, all right, well, you're not willing to put in the effort. Well, here's your bus ticket. Go back to New York, have fun, see ya. Different approaches for different characters because they actually have different personalities in this movie. And it's true of everyone, Latin, it's true of Worsley. Yeah, when you're a coach or a manager, so a manager in baseball, but a coach in most sports, you do have to, well, maybe you don't, maybe some of the greats didn't do this, but you should think of it as a psychologist. A huge part of your job should be that, I think, because you can't coach everyone the same way. Some guys can be pushed hard and can be called names, can be insulted, can be hazed, all that kind of stuff, and they will respond very well. I'll bring it up again, the whiplash thing. Mm -hmm. Other people don't handle that at all. Some people are too sensitive. I don't mean that as a criticism, they just are. And they would respond badly to that. Shed seems to be somebody who responds, but it's more out of fear. He doesn't have that, you showed me how to do it, coach. It's more like, I better do this or I'm gone. Yeah. So I don't really blame Don for how he handled it. He never seems to truly coddle anybody. He pushes them hard. When they go out drinking at the Mexican bar, when Bobby Joe meets Tina, the next day, I don't know how he found out. Maybe he can just smell the booze on them. But anyway, he finds out and trains them very hard. And he does it to them later on when they've been out messing around again. The bonding situation. I had just taken a note, actually, at that point that the players seemed to get along okay. When they'd win a game, you'd see the white guys high-fiving them and hugging them, I mean, the black players, and it would be fine. And I didn't think we really had an example of how they actually had bonded. But then they go out and you see the dorky dude with the glasses who looks a lot like the real guy. When you see the picture at the end of everybody, you can pick him out easily from that picture. But he is in with the ladies dancing and the Jerry, who's the white player who has by far the most dialogue in this movie, Austin Nichols plays him pretty well. He's the one asking them about, do you prefer to be called colored or black? And it's just black, man. It's fine. It's cool. But that's when they bond. And I had just taken a note before that scene happened saying, when did they start getting along better than they had before? And then they started doing it. So that was good. There might be so much about race. And I think it's handled pretty well. Considering no black kids started on any team in the South. They talk about that. Because why make the best team? We discussed this when we did... What was it? Invictus, it probably came up because that was a movie about race. We've covered this lots of times in our sports movies. This racist stupidity is bad enough, but then when you're not putting the best team on the floor that you possibly can, 
Don may have done it out of desperation to try to win, but obviously he's a pretty accepting person if he's not ever saying anything. It's not like everyone catches him saying the bad words about them. The way that booster is, that stupid booster, again, do you want to make money? Oh, I'm selling more cars or whatever the hell it was he sold, furniture, than ever before. Okay, if that's what's going to stop you from being racist, that's not really good enough, but whatever. And he finally <laughs> does do that. He wants this team to win, and they are, and yet he's still, oh, all these guys on this team. And you know what he's thinking. He isn't saying the word, or if he did, I didn't take a note about that. We know what he meant. And then he comes around when he's selling more stuff, but he already would have been selling more stuff because the team was doing well. It doesn't make a lot of sense, but that's racism for you. It's just so stupid. And this movie has even more than I'd remembered. I haven't seen it in a couple of years. I remember that big scene where their room gets trashed. And I knew the theme of the whole movie was about black players being accepted on this Southern team and winning the NCAA championship. But I forgot that it comes up. It's not beaten to death, but it comes up in almost every scene in some way or another. It's never really forgotten. It is ever present. And, of course, rightfully so, when you're talking about a movie whose content is specifically about a team that broke a little bit of taboos. And that is one of the things that I was curious about because of the way it's portrayed in this movie. To what extent were players of color accepted, at least in the basketball world at this time, and no surprise that it would be some of these Southern schools that would be somewhat less cosmopolitan about it. But I don't think they're quite as unique as the movie made it out to seem. And certainly by this point, you had players like Bill Russell and Wilt Chamberlain, who were legitimate mega stars just in America. Mm -hmm. I think at this time, they're obviously pros, but had already been through the NCAA ranks by that point. And you'd have Kareem a year or two later. It never ceases to amaze me how people will act outside of their own best interests, like you described with this booster who can't see past their own bigoted viewpoints until he realizes, you know what? Money is actually a motivating factor for me, so I'm okay with people not like me as long as it makes me money, which like you said, is not the most high-minded reason for it necessarily, but I guess he kind of got to a, a slightly more enlightened place, even if it's for a bad reason. But how many times still... Do we see people that you can't even appeal to on that base level? I'm sure there's still people that you could say, listen, you'll make twice as much money through sponsorships, through whatever, and all you need to do is increase your visible minority percentage on your team. And I bet you there's still, particularly in America and the South, a fair number of people that would say, ah, screw that. I want all those good white farm boys. I want my Larry Legends. I don't want my Michael Jordans, right? And it's often hard for me to wrap my head around just because I've lived in a city like Toronto my entire life and it's just been like a melting pot situation. But that's part of the reason I find movies like this, at least when it's done with a reasonable sense of delicacy, interesting to watch. It really does bring home a different world scenario for me. The fact that they actually included a guy like Willie Worsley in this movie, but they didn't make him obnoxious, good on you guys. Because in a movie where of course, it takes place right in the height of the civil rights movement. The bill had been signed only a year before the movie starts yeah. in 65. The bill was, I looked it up, signed in 1964, of July, in fact. So about a year before this season would have started, the 65-66 season. So tensions in the South were probably even higher because a lot of white people were feeling betrayed. How dare you make it that they literally have rights now? And they've been pushing back against that ever since. But yeah, that was very prominent. And this movie was fictional. You'd say, come on, you're going to make the movie be a year after the Civil Rights Bill? Why don't you make it the day after the Civil Rights Bill? But it's based on a true story, so that actually happened. And you have a guy who's, aside from being the basketball player, one of their primary traits is that back in New York, he was an active 
participant in the Black Panthers movement, an advocate of Malcolm X's, and he could have been a really outspoken and obnoxious mouthpiece for one specific worldview, because it's not a worldview that all these players share. In fact, I think there's that one scene with, is it Flournoy or was it Latin, where they pick up his book by Malcolm X as they start reading it, and Boris is like, don't touch my stuff. You're not effectively a Black Panther, so you're not entitled to read this. And the other guy's response is, I might not have read that stuff, but I've lived the experience. Mm. That's a nice way to handle that. These are all young men that have had similar experiences, and you can call them different things, but you don't have to proselytize about one particular group's activism, I suppose. They didn't beat the drum to death, I guess is my point. And again, it's one of those moments where I was a little bit impressed with the restraint that this director showed in these moments, because too often we've done movies where they bludgeon you over the head with one message or another, and it just kind of makes it obnoxious to watch at a certain point. The message isn't subtle, but you're right, it's not too bludgeony. It's bludgeonish. It's bludgeoned adjacent. They kind of like swat you around the face a little bit, but they don't take the sledgehammer to the scalp. So that's always appreciated. But the players at the end, or the guys at the end who were players many years before, the real people talk about how this is true. So I'm going to bet it's true. <laughs> no movie that's made about a real story is ever 100% accurate. At the end, when they win, Josh Lucas plays that we just won moment, overwhelmed moment, the way Ed Harris does in Apollo 13. Mm -hmm. Both of them sit down, and Harris has a little bit of a teary situation. Lucas doesn't play that exactly, but it reminded me so much of the Apollo 13 movie. Bev and I covered that last year for the other podcast. Apollo 13 obviously is based on a real story. I'm sure there are lots of things they didn't get exactly right in that movie because it's a movie. We've covered a lot of based on reality movies lately. We're going to cover a lot more in the next little while. Not intentional, just the way it's worked out. And when we've read about the real stories, it doesn't seem like they're way off. It seems like they're close enough anyway. And you never know about things like budget. Maybe the budget made them have to shoot a scene differently or a different place because they couldn't afford to do it the way they should have done it and the way they know they should have done it. People can be dicks about that when they review movies or watch movies, don't they? <laughs> well, that's not exactly right. Because it's not reality. It's trying to be reality. I think that's mostly true. In a movie like this, that hinges on really two things in my mind. One is it has to be about the relationships. Because whether you're talking about the basketball aspect of it or the race relations aspect of this movie, it's all about the relationships in terms of how you're actually going to feel about the outcome. And then secondarily, because of the way this movie is actually depicted in that there's a lot of actual basketball being shown then the sport has to be shot reasonably well if you're going to show this much of it. And like you said, I think right off the top, it does that pretty well. If you're going to fudge the details in the service of the story in terms of being historically accurate, I'm okay with that in terms of the way this movie did it because it made sense, like I said, and it doesn't take away from the underlying points. We've certainly done a lot of movies where I felt differently. But where you really cannot afford to make mistakes, at least in my eyes, because it just shows you being lazy and I think it can be distracting is where there's factual elements of particularly the sport being played. Was it rookie of the year or something where they just got the details so far wrong and all you needed to do was take one moment to look up a sports almanac and see the way the playoffs work or where the standings were and you could have fixed it. It's not budgetary, it's not service to the script, it's just laziness. I don't think that's a trap this movie falls into. You know one thing that they got very right were the scores in the tournament. The game where they won in double overtime and the guy stepped on the line and that's how they won because he hit a basket, but he was out of bounds. That's portrayed as the game that got them into the finals. But in looking it up, they played five games. That was the third of five. The score in that game, though, was 81 to 80, which I think is what they show. And then the championship game, 72-65, which I believe is what they show on the scoreboard in the movie, was the score of the game against Kentucky, who was the massive favorite. 
So they got the scores mostly right as well. I don't know if they got exactly right how they won that third game, but that was pretty good that they even went down that road and being that accurate. I was actually going to ask you if you knew whether the stepping on the end line and the free throws and stuff like that were true to life, but maybe that's a little bit too much detail for these guys to try to look up from a game that happened 40 years before this movie was made. The first game of the season, which they barely win, but they do go on a long winning streak before they start to break down after the racist situation and the black players won't pass to the white players, which is one of the reasons why, well, probably the main reason why they lose the game. They're not playing as a team. But when they win that first game, that was not accurate. The score wasn't close, but they make it seem like they won by four or five or six points. That's not a big deal, but they got the big game scores right. Speaking of scores, I haven't even done any of the numbers I usually do long ago, so let's do that now. Rotten Tomatoes. This is going to surprise you, but let me give you the good number first. The audience is on Rotten Tomatoes, 81%. The critics, 55%. Guarantee you they think it was cliche. The movie is cliche. But it worked on me. So that's got to be why I didn't even get a fresh tomato. I don't know what critics really look at when they review these movies, but you're watching a movie like Glory Road, understanding what its subject matter is and presumably what its broad intention is, and you're going to rag on it because it feels cliche to you? That feels a little bit harsh, doesn't it? Because Mm -hmm. largely it's a true story, at least in its arc. But what variation are you going to put on this thing to make it not cliche? You're going to have the starting point guard murder somebody in the middle of the second game have the team <laughs> overcome it somehow? I don't understand. I didn't read the reviews. I'm guessing that's something to do with it. This is one of the most visceral reactions I've ever had to your Rotten Tomatoes numbers. I gotta say, <laughs> I don't understand this critics number. So it was 71st at the 2006 US box office. Talladega Nights was 12th at the box office that year. We covered that way back in the beginning of our podcast. Rocky Balboa, which we'll probably do one day, was 38th. Invincible, which we covered a few weeks ago, was 55th. And I just saw this movie Beer League with Artie Lang and also The Benchwarmers. Those were released in 2006 as well. That was a big sports movie year. But this one, Glory Road, won the ESPY for Best Sports Movie. None of the ones I just mentioned were even nominated. Not Talladega Nights, not Rocky Balboa. Not Invincible. Beer League and Benchwarmers, I can see why they wouldn't be nominated. No. But So this one, and the ones it was up against are movies that either don't really know much about them. One of them is a TV movie, or they're just not movies that anybody really cared about. But this did win, at least, and it's the best of the ones I saw of the nominees for the ESPY. Well, that's fair. I always give credit when they take the time to try to make it look half-decent and pay attention to the details. In this case, of course, being in the mid-1960s, the way the game was played would have been a lot different. And I don't know how accurate that was because I think you saw a lot more Showtime kind of ball handling and dunking yes. and stuff. I doubt it was like that in the 60s, yeah. This movie looks fantastic and the way they shot it is great. And full credit to Gartner and his technical crew for doing that. But that probably isn't. And I just said the movie is accurate. Okay, that probably isn't period accurate exactly. When you see the basically slow basketball we saw in Hoosiers, yeah, fast at times, but for the most part it's not that... <laughs> type action you can see now and some of those trick passes that these guys do in this movie but i doubt that was done very much if at all maybe the black players if they were playing more in the college ranks especially in the south would have been doing that but i'd be a little bit surprised if even they were doing that it would probably be a little bit more prevalent too in street ball right because that's always been the case where you get that flashier ball handling okay that's true but i do agree with you and part of the reason for that is because of course this is also pre-shot clock and pre-three-point line so You can have players just kill the clock by dribbling out time endlessly in this era of basketball if you wanted to, which is why scores were so bloody low in this era too. And then players can rest that way. You don't have to use the bench as much. You can keep your best players on the court because they can just stand there for an extra 20 seconds (laughs) and catch their breath. So yeah, it would have been a much more boring brand, I imagine. Although one of my favorite basketball facts of all time, pro or otherwise, this movie takes place about a year, year and a half before the Kareem rule came into effect in the NCAA, 
where he was so dominant at the rim that the NCAA actually banned dunking as a legal shot for a decade because of oh. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. This is just before that, but nonetheless, Don Haskins is pretty much anti-dunk as a move. And you know what? I'm always the guy that hates the fundamental, fundamental, fundamental kind of preaching about any sport, basically. But our home team, the Raptors, have kind of brought me around a little bit in recent years on that front because I've come to really enjoy watching a team defensively just stymie the heck out of their opponents, particularly in the NBA in 2021, where it's just 130 to 125 score every night. Just because I've always been a fan of that particular eccentricity of basketball, that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar dunk prohibition. When Don Haskins was preaching at them, no dunking, no dunking, all I could think of was, man, you better get him in while you can, because in a year, you won't be able to at all. <laughs> get your jollies now, man. Well, Don won't let them play their game early on. It's one of the reasons why, even though they win all the time, and they only lost one game all year, and we saw that depicted, they're not winning as much as they want to, I guess. The players just feel like they're stymied. We're doing well, but not as well as we want to. And maybe the idea, and Don was always thinking this, is you'll get to play your game later. We saw that in Hoosiers, too, where he makes them pass four times before they take a shot. And when, I think it's Raid, goes against his wishes, he gets benched. That's the game where they play with four players and lose, of course. And then later on, when he wants a certain system, but they're saying, Jimmy can do it by himself. Okay, fine. And at the end, too, Merle's going to take the last shot. Jimmy should do it. Okay, you're right. Jimmy should do it. Yeah. So you have to be adaptable to this kind of stuff, no matter how much of a tyrant you want to be. Don is very much like Coach Norman Dale and Hoosiers in so many ways. I think Lucas is pretty solid in this movie. And I was saying to you in the pre-chat that I thought Josh Lucas is the better actor between him and Patrick Wilson, who I think of a similar kind of career, the Pullman-Paxton analogy of the modern era compared to those guys in the 80s and 90s. Even though I think Pullman and Paxton are very different actors and their careers aren't really all that similar. Lucas is probably not that much similar to Wilson. I think Wilson has a great agent because I don't think he's a great actor. But then looking at Lucas's resume, it's not wonderful or anything. He was in Ford versus Ferrari. We could cover that one day, car racing movie. American Psycho, Bev and I covered that last year. He's done a lot of things, some pretty good ones. He was in the first Hulk movie. He's the antagonist. This was going to be Ben Affleck, though, originally. And I think Affleck had something else going on, didn't do it. He did The Way Back, which is a movie we definitely should do one of these days because I just saw it about six months ago, less than six months ago. It's pretty solid where he plays a basketball coach, but a serious drinking problem in that film. So I think Lucas is pretty good. He does have the line of, that's what I want, that's what I want. That's what I want. <laughs> Might be his most recurring line. I compared him to Hackman. He's not in the movie as much as Norman Dale was in that or yeah. Kurt Russell as a miracle. In some ways, when the movie gets in maybe 20 minutes, he's about even keel at best with the other guys. It is not his movie from the early part of the movie on. But what did you think of his performance? I think you're pretty spot on, to be honest with you. He never really struck me as the lead in this movie just because it is so focused on the players on the team. The first 20 minutes is all about Haskins and how he comes to El Paso and all that stuff. But thereafter, he's really just the audience proxy almost to the experience of this group of players. And I thought he was perfectly good in the role. I just didn't really strongly have any feelings about him one way or the other. In fact, I felt more strongly about the guy that played the older... Not the young assistant, who's a little bit of... Yeah, I know you're talking the about. The comedic... Red West. Yeah, Red West. He's really good in this. The two assistants, and I think they're both assistant coaches. The young guy's fun. Mo Iba, yeah. So he's a real guy. I looked up the team, and it says... I think it's pronounced Iba, but his name is actually the assistant coach. Red West character is not on there. Ross Moore is not there that I could see, at least. He must be a trainer or something, so he's not actually an assistant coach. I see. But the fun moment you're talking about, when Evan Jones, who plays Mo, goes to New York... Yeah. <laughs> and just innocently asks about them being colored... 
and they take his clothes off. And that's another funny scene. That's one of the openings. But he's recruiting the guys in the Bronx in New York. Exactly. And then he's on the phone with Don and the guy calls him the gas station. Hey, you want me to fill this up or not? And then the camera turns back to Mo and he's in his underwear. He says, I'm going to need you to wire me another hundred dollars. <laughs> and apparently the guy that plays the gas station attendant is the real Don Haskins. I guess they gave him a cameo. Lucas put on weight, but he still doesn't look that much like him. But hey, that's fine. At least he doesn't have the silly putty in his face like John Voight does. Yeah, we got to talk about that. Okay, back to Red West, though, because I think Red West is terrific in that role. Yeah, he is fantastic. I already said Don Haskins felt like the audience proxy to me in terms of watching the evolution of the players. But maybe it is really more Red West that is meant to be our proxy, because early on he plays it kind of dubious about the plans that are happening but he's not no this is never going to work and then once the kids are there recruited it's not like he treats the black players any differently than the white no. players i think he almost likes them more he's really sensitive when shed has his nose broken he's the one saying that he won't go to the hospital and all that he cares about the kid. he cares about them regardless of the color of their skin and then the most touching and gut-wrenching moment of the movie to me was the moment when he's just talking with don and I think it's after the hotel room, blood on the walls, racist vandalizing of the kid's hotel room or something. Maybe it's after Shed got beaten up in the restaurant. I don't remember which it is, but he's just sitting with Don and he has this moment where he basically says, we treat these kids badly just because of the color of their skin. Shame on us kind of thing. Mm -hmm. It's not much of a line, but the way that the actor delivers it was such loathing, self-loathing. Even though he did nothing, it's just on behalf of older white men everywhere, he just felt such disgust with the way that these young kids were being treated. I found it a really poignant moment. So I have no idea who this Red West guy is. I've never seen him in anything else. Yes, you have. He killed it. Really? You've seen Roadhouse, right? I don't think I have seen Roadhouse. You've never seen Roadhouse? No. He got seen Roadhouse. He's in that as one of the more prominent roles in his resume. I think the commensurate role for Red West in comparison with The Natural would be... Richard Farnsworth's character. I don't remember his character's name, but you know what I'm talking about? The old dude who was the assistant to Pop, the manager. I'm totally blanking now. We liked him so much, too. He's great in the straight story. He's been in a lot of movies, actually. A lot of westerns and stuff. Anyway, for those who know who I'm talking about, they're probably saying, yes! And maybe that's literally the reference here. But I think Red West, who was in Roadhouse, one of the old guys in that, in some ways steals this movie. But Derek Luke, who in some ways is the true lead of this film, and I think he's really good. He was Booby in Friday Night Lights, who might be one of the... Oh, he is. No might about it. One of the best sports characters we've ever seen. We've referred to Friday Night Lights and his character mm -hmm. specifically in a lot of movies since we saw that one. Doesn't make a lot of movies. Only about 20 in his 20 or so years of acting. A lot of TV, at least. But I wish he did more. And he's obviously a natural athlete. Or they make him look like one in this and in Friday Night Lights. But the biggest name actor going into this thing, and maybe still is the biggest name actor out of all these people, despite it being a good cast. This is true. You don't have to like him, but it's true. John Voight who played a boxer in The Champ around 20 years before this, maybe 25 years before this. He played Howard Cosell in Ali, which we'll probably do before the year's over. He's had a great career, Deliverance, of course, Midnight Cowboy. But he's a dick. Yeah. And he's, I could say worse words, but maybe we'll go PG-rated on this podcast. And he's wearing silly putty on his face. The makeup on him is not very good. He looks something like Adolf Rupp with all that makeup, but I think they're trying too hard. First and foremost, I have to agree with you with Derek Luke. I wish... He would do more movies, wish he had done more movies, because he always seems to do a good job with it. And this is another good character. And Bobby Joe, much like Booby Miles, it's a fairly nuanced character. And he really does a good job of bringing him to life. The best 
coach player moment in the movie is between him and Don Haskins. Let us play our own game and we'll win the game for you. And he says, okay, go play your game, but you're going to play mine too. Which I thought was great because honestly, it's not an all or nothing proposition, right? Right. You can still play a little bit of showtime offense, but then play determined defense and a team game. So I thought that was a nice little human moment of concession. But yeah, John Voigt, man, he's one of those guys where the more you learn about him, the more sad it becomes because he's such a storied and talented actor and I've liked him in so many things. It's kind of like Kevin Spacey. I don't want to know these things about you because there's so many things <laughs> that I like and I just can't watch anymore because it's ruined it for me. On top of that, yeah, the silly putty. If this whole movie was just filled with people who are just covered in prostheses all the time to try to look like the real life people, fine. I could forgive one misstep in makeup, but zero other people in this movie have any kind of <laughs> prosthetic makeup to make them look like the real life players. You said it earlier, and it's absolutely true. A lot of these players, or the people that they cast for the minors basketball team, they actually do look a fair bit like the players themselves, but that's just natural yep. resemblance. That's costume, putting the appropriate goggles on somebody and things like that. That's not prostheses. So why is it Adolf Rupp, this coach that hasn't coached in the NCAA since the 70s, and if you're outside of Midwest America, you've probably never heard of the guy. God help us all if John Voigt doesn't try to look as exactly like Adolf Ruff as possible with enormous oversized ears for some reason. And like you said, it doesn't make him look really any more like the actual guy if you look up the historic picture. I think he does look some more like him, but it isn't that important. No. I bet you, but John Voigt being the kind of person we know he is, but also just being an actor. This isn't about politics. Actors are like this. Well, James, the director, I got to look just like him. And I'm going to pull rank on you. Could very well be what it was. When he did Cosell, I remember him looking a decent amount like Cosell. And that would have taken a lot of makeup, too. Because I don't think John Voight looks anything like Howard Cosell just in life. So that could just be John Voight doing the method actor thing of, I've got to look like the guy. Josh Lucas doesn't look that much like Don Haskins. Not so at all. No. I don't think that Adolf Rupp believes his own special team speech. When he says it to his team, he's implying, you're the special team. All you white kids. Kentucky, you're the special team. I think in that moment, with still a couple minutes left in the game, and it's still fairly close, he knows Kentucky's going to lose. So his special team speech is really about the opponent. It's one of those subtle kind of, maybe not that subtle, but one of those kinds of contrasting moments, if you will. And I thought it was a good moment for Voight to have, too. But yeah. then he doesn't shake Haskins' hand. We don't see it portrayed, at least at the end of the game, that they shake hands. He sits down devastated, like his assistant coaches do. And after Haskins had had his moment of overwhelming feeling he gets back and celebrates but we don't see them ever have a oh way to go good job coach he seems like he's kind of bitter and resentful and a dick but he is a college basketball coaching legend he's up there with they didn't say but i think john wooden is probably the winningest basketball coach in history because they said rupp was the second winningest his resume speaks for itself it just so happened that he coached in an era that far precedes any modern basketball fans following of the game we don't know, obviously, what the man was like or his views on this team or this game necessarily. But you're right, the portrayal of it, both in the final game itself, I do have to say, for all of my criticism of John Voight as a person, like I said, I do like him as an actor, and I thought his portrayal was a really interesting one. But the way he portrayed the man in the interviews leading up to the game and during the game itself came across as a very old-school dignified kind of coach. You're not going to get all mm. amped up and emotional. You're going to appeal to your team's sense of respect in itself. And even the way he deals with Don in the pre-game interaction they have where Don Haskins says, oh, that's Adolf Rupp. I'm going to go introduce myself. And Rupp basically says, who are you? 
okay, good for you. I'll see you at the game and just brushes him off. So I wonder if that was the intention in the final game too, when you bring up after Rupp loses, he looks distraught. And I agree with you. I think that speech was intended to be more, at least in the director's mind, right? It's more about the minors than it is Kentucky. But at the same time, it felt like it was Rupp trying to buoy his team's spirit so they don't crumble in the moment. But then after the fact, you're right, we don't see any sort of conciliatory handshake or anything. But I wonder if that's just because in Rupp's mind, is it just that Don Haskins is a nobody still? It doesn't matter if he just won the game. He's just a non-entity in the mind of this legendary coach that doesn't even occur to him to go shake his hand. It's inconceivable to him that he lost. Nothing else matters, I guess, in that moment. I could see that. I think you may be right about that. Even though Don Haskins, and of course this wasn't true at the time, but he's now in the Basketball Hall of Fame, I think it is. And he's also in the College Basketball Hall of Fame. So he has, well, eventually put together one tremendous resume as a coach. But at the time, Rupp was looking at him like a puppy, I guess. I wonder if Voight was actually doing that to Lucas too. Voight was a heartthrob in his younger days, and Lucas was at this point, not in this movie exactly, but maybe there's some meta stuff going on there as well. Yeah, I think the basketball action is tremendous, actually, even though, yeah, maybe isn't quite accurate to the 60s even the way the streetball players could have played it. It might not be the single greatest basketball movie we've ever seen or will ever see, but just as far as how Gartner filmed it and the excitement of the game, the talent of these actors as players and a lot of acting scenes, more than those guys basically had in Miracle, mm -hmm. it's way up there with one of the better basketball movies we've seen, especially from the actual portraying the sport perspective. And it reminds me of how visceral and in the thick of it, Gavin O'Connor made Miracle, which is one of my favorite pure sports movies. Yeah, I agree. I know you feel more strongly about Miracle than I do, certainly, but I thought the portrayal of the sport was excellent. And I think one of the most entertaining little tidbits that I couldn't help but notice every time it was on the screen, I don't know why, it just drew my attention, the warm-up jackets that all the players would wear when they'd come out on the court, they all had the names on the back, right? But they weren't stitched on. They had buttons that attached the names to the back of the jackets. Uh, okay, does that mean that they attach them via buttons because it was easier? Or does it mean that those jackets just get returned every year and the names get swapped They're being out? cheap. <laughs> we didn't talk about this part at the beginning of the movie. When Don and his family arrive, they have to stay in the dorm. Yeah, Because right. the place can't afford to put them up. Now, I guess they're there the whole time, which seems weird when the team's succeeding. I don't know if that really would have helped the bottom line. We see how bad the gym looks. The floor's got a problem when he steps on one section of it. The lights aren't working properly, but then that's glossed over. But when they first get to Texas Western, him and his family, they're living with a bunch of half-naked basketball players, or I guess it's a basketball player walking by them. And maybe that's supposed to be a subtle detail that we can't afford to just give these away to these guys every year. So they're going to return it at the end of the year, and we're going to recycle it for people in the future. I think that is definitely what it probably was trying to subtly get at. The more we've talked about it, the more I realize that this actually does have a fair bit of relatively subtle humor sprinkled throughout in a way that's not going to make you laugh out loud much but it's going to make you kind of smile the floor night scenes do make you laugh out loud i think with his mom i would say 100 percent, that made me smile for sure it's the stuff you mentioned earlier where it's calling back to earlier moments when don gets hired to texas western it's because it's a small school and at that point he's supposed to be not a very well-known coach and so they can't really afford a big name so they bring him in he's got to live in the dorms they have no money to recruit which is why he goes and recruits all these little known players of color from around the country and at one point when he's talking to his assistant coach or to one of the administrators of the school asking for more money he says i'm supposed to recruit with how much money and then the assistant i think it was mo said well they said all the money was in the lights 
and they look up and there's just like birds nesting in these lights that are flickering on and off. Okay, yeah. It's like a horror movie. Shows how poor this school actually is in this moment relative to their other Div 1 competitors, right? But they do gloss over that long term. We don't see it dealt with very much. Of course, a lot of the games are in other places, other buildings. And the Final Four itself was in Maryland that year, not far from D.C. So I mentioned because of Tatiana Ali, Emily Deschanel, and then the guys themselves, most of the players, Josh Lucas, very good-looking people in this movie, but it's also not a movie that inspires hot feelings. No. But as far as an actual score goes, I'd say an 8 out of 10. I've always liked this movie. Thrilling. I'll watch it again one of these days, especially since it's on Disney+. Plus. I'm going to access it anytime I want to. This is one of those instances where I think I'm right there with you, because aside from the fact that it is cliche, although I don't know how you avoid it, and there are the odd missteps here and there, like John Voight's prosthetics and stuff like that, it's really solid, and it's entertaining to watch. It's enjoyable for the subject matter, right? There's times it's hard to watch because it's just true. But yeah, 8 out of 10 sounds good. And I think any movie that deals in depth with race relations issues, it's hard to say, yeah, this is a super scorable movie. But yeah, it's got a lot of attractive people in it. And the guy that plays Flournoy, ironically enough, given the relative lack of sexiness in this movie, he was in season two of True Blood when all the characters get stuck up in some sort of sex hypnosis cult thing. Okay. So it's hard to shake that from my memory while watching this, but yeah, otherwise a very chaste movie for a group of really young, fit, and good-looking guys, too, which is always kind of ironic when we watch these. How was your wine, sir, this time? Not beer, but wine. It was as smooth as Bobby Joe's handle with the ball. Either playing basketball or making moves on Tatiana Ali. He was smooth at both of those things. <laughs> That's right. Okay, well, I'm glad you like this movie because I've always been a fan of it. I've been talking it up to you for a long time, and here it is in the books. Glory Road. Very good basketball movie. And unfortunately, people at the time didn't think so, whether it be audiences or the critics. Well, in two weeks, it will be April 1st, and the baseball regular season kicks off that very day. The DVD of Hardball I bought a few months ago is burning a hole right through my shelf. Can you hear it back there? Make a lot of noise with the burning and the flames and the thing. So let's talk about Keanu coaching inner city kids, including Michael B. Jordan. Yes, Michael B. Jordan in Hardball. One of my favorites, and it also probably shouldn't be. This movie's so manipulative, but it always works on me. Again, a movie you've never seen before. So we're on Twitter. I'm at MovieFiend51. Chris is at Scoring at Movies. Talk to us. Tell us what you think of this podcast or other ones. Subscribe to us. Give us some downloads and whatnot. We are everywhere online, Stitcher, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and all the rest. So take her easy, b-ballers. One day you're going to be cutting down the net. That's what I want. <laughs>